Welcome back to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Hopkins, and tonight we are on episode 193. 193. And we join each other in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. If you're just joining us, let me recap real quickly. Uh, If you've been with us, you'll be very familiar with this outline. Romans chapter 1 is Paul's black picture of the world without a Savior, without a gospel. Chapter 2 is the Apostle Paul's just as black picture of those who think they know God through the law. That think they, because they have the Bible, they're okay because they know the rules, because they can say the right things or put a fish on their car, they're okay. And Paul says, no, the churched also need a gospel because it's possible to be churched and just as lost as the world. Chapter three then is the truth of the fact that there is salvation available that has nothing to do with the law, nothing to do with the requirements, and nothing to do with performance. A salvation has been made available apart from the law, apart from expectations, apart from rules. And that is something that the Jews of Jesus' day didn't understand, the Jews of Paul's day didn't understand, the Christians of Paul's day struggled with, and the Christians of our day struggle with. We have a hard time understanding grace and that grace is so complete that rules and laws and expectations and behavioral standards don't matter. So then in chapter four, Paul says, look, there was Abraham who is considered justified by his faith and He didn't even have a law. There was no law for Abraham. There weren't Ten Commandments. There weren't weren't anything. Abraham didn't have a Bible, an Old Testament, a scripture. All he had were oral stories that came to him from the cultures around him. And he had to find his place, his relationship with God, and his own foundational faith on his own, straight from God. And he did that, and God credited that to him, that faith that he could build his own belief system with nothing but God and himself. And he would do it imperfectly, but he could, and he did. And God credited that to him as righteousness because Abraham believed God. It comes down to that. And then in chapter 4, Paul turns to David and says, and look at David, the king of all kings, the king of all time, the greatest king Israel ever had, the, the prototype for what we believe the Messiah will look like. Well, we are wrong. That's not the Messiah. That's the king. And a crooked one at that. He had a law and he broke it at every single point. There isn't one of the 10 big commands that he didn't transgress, except maybe, thou shalt have no other God before me. He might have kept that one. I don't find any biblical evidence that he gave up on that one. 
but it's the only one he kept because all the others he broke. And yet he was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he took God at his word and he believed God by faith. And so Paul uses Abraham and David as examples of what it means to be justified by nothing other than faith. One had no law to live up to, and the other transgressed the law at every point. The only way they received righteousness, <coughs> excuse me, was to believe God. And they did. Now, chapter 5, Paul talks to you and I about what are the benefits of being justified by faith? What's in it for us? What do we get? How do we know? What can we see bearing fruit in our life if we are justified by faith? Because it's faith, right? It's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things you can't see. That means I won't be able to see it. I won't be able to feel it. I can't smell it. I can't taste it. I can't touch it. I can't hear it. So how will I know if I have been justified by faith? What, what will happen in my life that will bear witness to my spirit that I'm forgiven? So totally forgiven that the other shoe is never going to fall. The wrath is never coming. So Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We'll do like five verses, then there's a break. Therefore. Therefore means... Since all this is true, since the lost need a, need a gospel and the saved need a gospel, or the churched at least, since everybody needs salvation and salvation comes by faith and when we get our salvation, we are justified by the, by the just God. He, the just God justifies the unjustifiable and calls us saved by his grace because we couldn't have earned it. We would never have been worth it. Therefore, since all of this that's gone before has now been established, since we have been justified through faith, he takes that as a given. So, instead of therefore, you can just say so. Much easier to spell and much shorter. So, since we have been justified by faith, Paul treats it as a surety. If you have faith, you are justified. There's not a question. You don't have to come before God and wonder if you're one of the elect or not. If you've come to God, by faith, you are elect, you are chosen, you are saved. And at that point, all of Protestantism can agree. Doesn't matter what grace brought me there, it is by grace that I got there. It doesn't matter what happened in my heart before or what road I'd walked before. At the moment I show up at the cross looking for grace, I'm at the cross looking for grace. And that's all that matters. And once I ask God for that grace, in a sincere heart. I ask God for the grace and the justification that Christ purchased for me on the cross. It is mine. I don't have to wonder. Uh, there was a great popular Christian music artist, I don't know, 30 years ago. And I heard her testify at a concert and say, I remember the seventh time I got saved. Oh my goodness gracious. That's not anybody's theology. That's not, that's not anybody's theology. That's not Wesleyanism. That's not Reformed faith. 
Certainly not. That's not the Church of Christ. That's not even the Mormons. Nobody's faith is, I remember the seventh time I got saved. Girlfriend, what did you trust in the first time? Because the cross of Christ is efficacious. The cross of Christ is effective. Jesus died on the cross to do what he died on the cross to do, and he's good at it. He's not going to do half a work. He's not going to do one-seventh of a work. If you're running back and forth to the altar worrying about whether or not you're saved, you don't get it. Paul says, get it. Be sure. Rest assured. Know that since we have been justified by faith, well, through faith, by grace, through faith, since we have been justified through faith, number one, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is different than the peace of God. The peace of God is that peace that passeth all understanding, right? It's that that settled peace that washes over us in times that would have previously absolutely leveled us. The peace of God is the assurance, that calm assurance, that whatever I'm looking at, facing, going through, God's with me, and and we're going to make it. That's the peace of God. That's not what Paul's talking about. He says, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. It's a battle term. We have a treaty. We have an agreement. We have a settlement. We have peace, a covenant. The fact that we were justified by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ, means that through our Lord Jesus Christ, flip the verse around slightly, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have a peace treaty with God. Christ bought that for us. That's what we have faith in, and it's that faith that justifies us through Jesus Christ, and what it purchased for us was peace with God. There's no wrath coming. There's no war coming. There's no battle coming. God will not attack us. God will not shoot at us. God will not send the hounds of heaven after us. God will not stomp us on the head or bop us on the head when we do the wrong thing. That's not God. People talk about it all the time. Well, God gave me a whooping last week. No, you gave yourself a whooping. God doesn't give whoopings. When Jesus died on the cross, his death was effective enough. It was total enough to buy you peace with God. You're not getting a whooping from God. If you're getting a whooping, you did it to yourself or you took it from the devil. And the devil can only give you a whooping if you hand him the stick. Stop. Stop playing those games. Well, God had to take me to the woodshed last week. I don't know how many people I've heard testify silliness like that. And I was a pastor and I had to sit there and smile and nod my head. I couldn't stand up and say, no, that's foolishness. God doesn't take anybody to the woodshed. He doesn't have to. You have a conscience. He created you so that you know when you've done wrong. And it will take you to the woodshed. It will bother you to no end when you're not living right. Why do you think those people who aren't living right drink so much, take so many drugs, run off into the darkest corners they can find? 
John chapter 1. Light came into the world, but men liked the darkness better than light because their deeds were evil. Right? Guys, gals, Christ died on the cross so that you and I can have peace with God. And then I can have the peace of God in my heart, in my life, every day. But if I've been justified, I know because I don't have to fear God anymore. We have a peace treaty. And and honestly, no matter what foolishness I ever say about him, he's not going to whack me. A friend of mine walked into church a few weeks ago and said, Hey, look. The roof isn't collapsing on top of me. It was kind of funny, except that the roof had just been torn off our church by a tornado. So I thought, well, the roof's not collapsing, but it's flying away. God must have known he was coming to church. No, God doesn't work that way. He doesn't send calamity on you. He doesn't send bad things to people. It's the lesson of the book of Job. And if you didn't go through Job with us, Stop, go back, and go through Job before you go on through the book of Romans. God doesn't whack people. We've got to get over this belief that God has a big stick. And if you get out of line, he'll use it on you. Or worse, God has lightning, and if you get out of line, he'll zap you. That's not God. That is not God. Jesus Christ of Nazareth said, God is love. And the answers of God are yes and amen. He doesn't take. He doesn't hurt. He doesn't harm. He doesn't whack. He doesn't strike. He doesn't zap. We make that stuff up. We write stupid songs. Well, it's a half stupid song. The first part of it's really good. Then we get to the bridge and we sing, He gives and takes away. He does not. He does give. God doesn't take away. He's He's not the capricious God. He's not the Indian giver God. He's not the one who who gives you something and then takes it away from you. That's not God. It is the enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Not God. The answers of the Lord are yes and amen. Well, God answers all prayers, but sometimes he says no. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the answers of God are yes and amen. If you're hearing no, it's because you're saying no to yourself, or the enemy is saying no to you, or your mommy and daddy are saying no to you. God's not saying no to you. Now, he may not be answering your prayer if you're asking him for a new Cadillac, God's not saying no. You're just being a fool. (laughs) Stop blaming God for your foolishness and go live in faith and justification and righteousness and peace because you have the peace of God. Okay, got to move on. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. You have peace with God and you have access to his grace. You have free access to his grace. Have you ever had free access somewhere where you kind of felt important? I had a friend who was a bouncer at the most popular dancing place 
in town when I was in college. And the line outside was always half a block to a block long. It would You would stand in line for an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hours before you could ever get in. But my buddy was a bouncer there. So I'd walk up to the door and the guy sitting by the door might not be my friend, but I'd say, hey, is Trey in there? He'd be like, yeah, hold on a second. Yo, Trey. Trey would come over and see me. He motioned to me to come in. I just walk in. I didn't stand in line. I had free access. I had an inside connection. My friend in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus Christ is your inside connection. He's the one who takes all the blocks out of the way, allows you to skip the line, allows you to skip judgment, and walk straight in with free access. There's no St. Peter guarding the gate of heaven for you. Your, Your entrance admission has been paid on the cross. So you not only have justification and peace with God, through that cross, but you have free access to the grace in which you now stand. And you've heard me say before, it's like an Oklahoma thunderstorm in June. We used to call them toad stranglers. The joke was that the rain would fall so hard that the water would get so high that the toads would float and and run into the top wire of a barbed wire fence, which is about four and a half, five feet off the ground. And, and it'd catch them around the throat and strangle them to death. That's how high the water got because the rain came down so hard. It doesn't get that bad, but it, it will get flash floods. We'll get cars washed off the road. I saw a video a few years ago of a guy water skiing in the ditch behind a pickup truck. Pickup truck's going down the road. He's got the ski rope. He's on his skis. He's in the ditch. And the ditch is so full of water that he's just water skiing along behind the pickup down through the ditch. <clears throat> that guy lives in my county, still here. So there's there's folk who can attest to the fact that that's the truth. That's an Oklahoma spring thunderstorm. That's how grace is. It falls like that. So hard that you can't see through it. You can't drive through it. You got to pull over and just and just sit in it. And if you get out of your car and you run around the car to the other side, you're going to get drenched before you can get back in. Chinese fire drill can't happen fast enough to keep you dry. It's raining that hard. My dear friends, grace is falling that plentifully 24-7, 365, every day of your life, every minute, every hour, every second. Grace is pouring down on you and you have free access through Jesus Christ to that kind of grace. Got a problem? Step outside. Not to fight with God, to stand in His grace. It'll only take seconds and you'll be soaked. Are you afraid? Walk out into the rain of grace. Just stand in the shower of grace. Got some old habit or, or hang-up that's haunting you? My friend, walk out into the grace. Do you bear guilt over something that you did long ago and you just don't know how God can forgive you? He settled that on the cross thousands of years before you were born. Walk yourself out into the rain shower of God's grace and soak it up. Come on now. 
God wants to love you. God wants to forgive you. God wants to justify you. God wants to empower you and to walk with you and have a relationship with you. He wants to pour his grace out on you. If you're not getting it, get the umbrella out of the way. Get outside of the roof you've built over your head to shield you from all the hurt and harm and and fear of God. Walk out into the rain and just let him drench you in his love and his grace and his forgiveness. You have free access to the most exclusive place on the face of the earth, the throne room of God. And there you are going to get poured upon with grace. Am I afraid to go to heaven and stand judgment? No, my judgment was had the day I confessed my sin and said, Lord, I'm a sinner and I'm I'm absolutely deserving of, of judgment. If there's a hell, I'm deserving of going there. Hold my judgment right now, but Lord, make Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior and judge me in light of that cross. The hymn says that God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Wow. My judgment was had that day. We're not going to have another one. There's no double jeopardy in God's kingdom. My judgment was had. And I was found guilty. But I was justified. I was made righteous. God made him who knew no sin to be absolute sin for me, that in him I might be granted the absolute righteousness of God. See, my judgment was had, and I was found guilty, but Christ stepped into the mix and said, For this one, Father, I paid the price, and God credited to me a righteousness that wasn't my own. It was Jesus' righteousness, and God applied it to my life and saw me in Christ so that I disappeared, so that, as Paul says, it was no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And God judged Christ and said, oh wait, that price was paid on the cross. There's no more judgment to be had. There's no more wrath to be taken out. Enter my kingdom, not when you die, the day you got saved. You died, you were resurrected, and you were made a citizen of heaven that day. Don't need a resurrection, don't need a rapture, don't need Jesus to come back 14 more times. You became a citizen of heaven the moment you were saved. Your death happened, your resurrection to new life happened. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You were resurrected. You are no less a citizen of heaven than you're ever going to be. And you will never be more of a citizen of heaven than you are if you are in Christ today. You're already a heavenly citizen. Eventually, we're going to get around to the book of Ephesians, and I'll show you how the book of Ephesians says that so very clearly. What do we have? Because we're justified by faith, We have peace with God. We have access by faith into this immense grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. So we boast in the hope of the glory of God. What's the hope of the glory of God? 
Well, it's the promise that we're going to end up living with God forever. But when does that when does that citizenship begin? After you die? You go into heaven after you die? Oh boy. Won't that be fun? You don't ever get to live there. You just get to die and go there. Come on, man. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that you become a citizen of heaven the moment you are in Christ Jesus. You're justified. You're forgiven. You're saved. You're washed. You're clean. Your your death to sin happens. Your resurrection to new life happens. And you are a new creation. You are a new creation. You have your new body in a spiritual sense right then. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Paul calls that old self the body of death. Who will save me from it? Thanks be to God and Jesus Christ. He will. And what he'll give me is my new self. It's not a It's not a flesh versus spirit thing. It's an old self versus new self thing. And the new self is my justified, glorified self that I live on this earth in. Jesus prays, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just like it is in heaven. That's Jesus' hope and prayer for you on this earth that you would be a kingdom citizen, that you would be a heavenly citizen while you're still alive, dead to sin, alive in Christ, and bringing his kingdom to bear on this earth. Book of Revelation. Do we go up to heaven for the kingdom of God? No, the kingdom of God comes here and we live in it on this earth. How does that happen? You get saved, you die to sin, you are justified, you are resurrected, you take on your new life and your new self, and the old is gone and the new has come. You have your resurrection self walking around right now, and you bring the kingdom of heaven to bear on this earth. That's what the Bible is about. Not about pie in the sky and the sweet by and by. It's about living out the kingdom of God on this earth in our lives right now. Tell me, where does Jesus live? Where does Jesus live right now? Up in the blue sky? No. Off in some temple somewhere? No. Where does Jesus live right now? In the air? No. In the hearts of those who believe in him. Jesus comes to live in your heart, right? We tell little children, do you want to ask Jesus to come and live in your heart? That's not wrong language. That's absolutely the right language. Jesus called it being born again. Nicodemus said, wait, I'm old. How can I crawl back in my mother's womb and then pop out again? Jesus probably rolled his eyes at him and shook his head. Said, no, no, no. I'm talking about a birth by water and fire talking about a total re-refining, remaking, reshaping of your self, body, mind, spirit, soul, that all of you is made new and all of you is redeemed. You're not a good spirit in a bad flesh. Oh, my flesh just gets in the way. That's dualism. That's heresy. Jesus Christ's death on the cross was adequate to redeem you, body, mind, soul, and spirit. Your entire person is redeemed when you come to Christ. You become a heavenly citizen in that moment and you are living in your resurrection, glorified, eternal body and soul right then. 
You're going to leave that physical canister behind. You're not going to need it anymore. But your heavenly body, your heavenly soul, your heavenly spirit, your heavenly mind, you're taking all that with you. You see, we make it way too hard. And we take all the glory out of it, quite frankly. We boast in the hope that we have in the glory of God. And it's not just our hope. We also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance brings character and character gives us hope. He has come full circle. In verse 2, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. How do we get that hope? By glorying in our sufferings. When things are bad, having faith and saying, praise the Lord that I'm going through this because this suffering is going to build my perseverance. I'm going to learn to stand through the hard things. I'm going to learn that I can do hard things and I can survive hard things. I can live through stuff I never dreamed I could. We say stupid things like, God will never give us more than we can stand. Excuse me, but you can stand a whole lot more than you even dream. And you're going to get the chance to experience that in this lifetime. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You're going to get through it. It's going to be more than you ever thought you could bear. Some of you are going to have cancer. Some of you are going through chemotherapy. Some of you are going through radiation. Some of you are going to lose the most precious people to you in this world. Some of you are going to lose kids. Some of you are going to lose grandkids. And it's going to feel like you would rather die than give up that life, that health, that peace. And there are days you're going to say, Lord, you promised. The promise wasn't that you wouldn't have to bear more. The promise was that when you thought you'd had all you could take, when you thought you were hitting rock bottom and you pounded on the ground on that rock bottom, you're going to find out it wasn't the ground and it wasn't rock hard. It was the palm of the hand of God that caught you so you wouldn't fall any further. That's the promise. Not that you won't get more than you can bear. You're going to get more than you can bear. And then you're going to find out that in Christ you can bear even that. Even if death is coming. I've watched faithful people who've been through chemo and radiation and hardship and and they've lost body parts and they've had multiple surgeries and, and death is coming anyway. And I've watched them testify to their kids and their grandkids and say, this is how life goes. I've fought the hard fight, but my fight is over. Praise God, I'm going home. Could I bear that? I don't know. I sure don't want to. But I've seen enough in this life to understand that if I have to, God will be there with me. And yes, I will bear more than I could ever possibly ask or think because God is going through it with me. I'm going to glory in suffering because suffering builds my perseverance. 
perseverance builds my character. I become a person who isn't blown back and forth by fear and doubt and every wind of teaching and doctrine. I'm not wishy-washy anymore. I've got a foundation. I was talking to somebody about this stuff a few days ago and they said, you're awfully sure of yourself. You better believe I am because I believe what the Bible says. I stopped a few years ago believing what a church says, believing what a denomination says, believing what some theological system says. I put all of that away. I was an expert in that stuff. I'd been to school to learn that stuff. I had a master's degree in that stuff and I pushed it all aside. I boxed up all my books except the Bible. And I went to the Bible and I said, what in the world does the Bible say? And I began to see that we'd made this all much harder than it has to be. I glory in my suffering, Paul says, because suffering produces perseverance and perseverance builds character and character brings hope. A person who has character and isn't blown about by fear and doubt and, and the latest fad in theology and the idiots in politics, in the midst of whatever suffering and darkness he's in, he has hope. Because he understands that's all a smokescreen. That's all an appearance. That's all temporary. That's all earthbound stuff to which I died and have been resurrected from. I have hope. And hope does not, verse 5, hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not expose us to shame. Hope doesn't shame us. Because God's love is poured out like a July thunderstorm into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you don't turn off the car and get out and dance in the road right now, I don't know if you're saved or not. Uh, That's good news. Hope does not expose us to shame, verse 5, because God's love, because hope comes from God's love and love doesn't expose people to shame. It takes away the shame. Hope doesn't make people guilty It declares them innocent, even if they were guilty. That's grace. Hope doesn't expose us to shame. Hope doesn't put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. One last thought. We'll stop here. On the cross, did Christ give his life or was it taken from him? He gave it. Not only theologically, but realistically. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He had that kind of power. He'd exhibited that kind of power. But he gave his life. Who did he give it to? Who did he give it to? Who did Jesus give his life to? We always say that Jesus gave his life for us. That's true, but it's only part of the truth. Who did he give it to? He told his disciples, I have to go now. You can't come where I'm going, but I have to go because if I don't go, I can't send you the comforter. I can't send you the Holy Spirit. Who's the Holy Spirit? Father, Son, Holy Ghost. 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's, it's God. It's Jesus Christ. They're all the same. On the cross, Jesus gave his life for you, and Jesus gave his life to you. We have short we have shortchanged that sacrifice by making it just a just a substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in my place. He died for me. <clears throat> Jesus gave his life for me. Well, where did your Christian life come from? Where did your Christian, which means little Jesus, where did your life of Christ come from? That's what Christian means, the life of Christ. It's diminutive. It's like ito in Spanish. It means little. Little Jesus. Little life of Jesus. Where'd you get that spark of the life of Jesus? From the cross? From Jesus himself? It was the free gift of Christ on the cross that purchased your salvation. But it did more than substitute in your place for the wrath of God. It did more than propitiate and expiate and purchase you salvation. It wasn't a financial transaction. Jesus didn't die on the cross to cash in his Bitcoin so that you could have salvation. Jesus died on the cross to give you his life, to give you his holiness, to give you his grace, to give you his justification. Jesus died on the cross as the gift to you of the salvation in the person of God so that you can live a Christian life, a life after Christ, a miniature Christ life, so that you can live with the Holy Spirit in you, indwelling you, filling you, working through you, so that you can bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. See? It's all a system. You can tie it all together. I'll show you how. And you can check me in the Bible. And if you can prove me wrong, please text me, email me, call me, come see me. Show me where I missed it. I, I'm a big boy. You can't hurt my feelings. I don't mind discussing the stuff. I've been discussing it for years now. If I've put it together wrong, if I've taken anything out of context, or I've, or I've misconnected some pieces somewhere, show me. I'll fix it. I'll get back on the podcast and say, you know, Bob came to me the other day, showed me that I wasn't telling you the truth. Jesus didn't really die on the cross to give you the power of the Holy Spirit to live a Christian life. I, I missed that. I'm sorry. Here's, here's the truth. Whatever else it might be. But I think you'll find that what I'm telling you is consistent with all of Scripture. It's not about what's going on in politics. It's not about what's going on in the world. It's not about what's going on in the day-to-day. -day. It's about what happened on that cross and what was purchased for you, bought for you, provided for you, poured out on you, and given to you. Given to you as a free gift of grace. The person of Christ himself. Jesus' prayer for his disciples in John chapter 17 was, Father, may they be one as you and I are one. May they be one with us as we are one. I and you and you and me, may they be in us. Jesus prays you into the Trinity. So it becomes a quadrilateral. It becomes four in one. 
when you are saved and justified and sanctified and glorified and bought and paid for and filled with the Holy Spirit, God doesn't see you. He sees part of himself, part of his family. You become part. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. We sang it. We never understood it. It was true. You become such a part of the person of God that he doesn't see you. God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me because he doesn't see me. He sees Christ. He sees the Holy Spirit. He sees the personality of himself in us. And we become a part of the family, of the kingdom. It's a whole lot bigger than just getting our fire insurance and getting, quote, saved, end of quote. It's about bringing the kingdom of heaven onto this earth. I don't want to stop. I don't want to give you some word that makes you relax and turn off the radio and start to think about it. I want you to think about it for the next few days. I want you to digest this. I want you to go back in the fifth chapter of Romans and read these first five verses until they eat you up and they get inside you and you begin to realize that what you get, the title of this podcast is going to be What's In It For Me? What is in it for you? You know the answer now. What was in it for you? Jesus. Jesus was in it for you. Not just to take your place. He did that. Not just to to expiate you and push away your judgment. He did that. Not just to be your propitiation and end the wrath of God for all time on you. He did that. Not just to call you his own. He did that. Not just to empower you to live a life pleasing to God. He did that. But to give you his own spirit. To come to indwell you and live in you so that you could bring the kingdom of heaven to bear on this earth with your words, with your actions, with your deeds. Let's go out into the world in the next few days and begin to shape our lives by that standard. What would my life look like if in my words and my work personality and my home personality, I I tried to share the spirit of Jesus living in me with the people around me. I think that's enough challenge for this week. 